Let's pray again. God of all glory and grace, we thank you for the privilege of being gathered together for the sake of your great name. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who is the perfect manifestation and representation of you here on earth. Lord, we thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit who convicts us and regenerates us, seals us and guides us. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to study your word so that we can see who you are and what you have for us. We pray that we will be submissive to you correcting our vision today so that we will see you rightly, believe rightly, and behave rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Right belief and behavior begins with right understanding. Or if you reverse the order, right thinking leads to right belief, leads to right living. In the context that we've been studying in Acts chapters 10 and 11, I'd like to say it like this, right perception, seeing rightly, leads to right conclusions, which lead to right conduct. We must let God correct our wrong thinking. If we don't let God correct our vision, we will live disconnected from, from him to die and go to our destruction, eternally distant from God. If we don't let God give us a better vision, we will go on believing and behaving in ways that are counterproductive to his purposes in Jesus Christ. So in this section of Acts, God is showing the church how to see rightly, how to think rightly about the new covenant people that he is making for himself. As we've applied what God is teaching Peter for the sake of the church at this time to ourselves, We've come, uh, we've come up with the following conclusions. First, we talked about the fact that to be the messengers of the gospel that Jesus desires for us to be, we must learn to see ourselves and others as God sees. In that section, first, Cornelius receives a vision from God telling him, an angel tells him that he should send for Peter in Joppa to come to Caesarea so that he can hear what Peter has to say because Cornelius needs to hear about Jesus. And so God takes the initiative in Cornelius's life. And then meanwhile, Peter receives a vision from God. And in that vision, there's this sheet being lowered and, and, and all various kinds of animals. So some of those animals are unclean, would have been unclean for consumption for the Jews according to the Mosaic law. And the voice from God tells him, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, no, I've never eaten anything clean or uncommon. And God says, don't call anything unclean that I have made clean. Don't call anything common that I have made clean. So we're learning to see ourselves and others as God sees. And then the next week, we emphasize from verses 17 to 35, when we see others as God sees, we're persuaded by his impartiality to put aside ethnic prejudice and to associate with people who are different from us 
in order to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Here we saw the evidence that Peter began to understand and and that Peter became persuaded of God's intention. He invited people into his life, and he went and invested in them where they are, not to leave them as they are, but to go to them where they are. As we continued, we saw that God has shown Peter that Peter must be clear that the good news that Jesus is Lord of all means that Christ or God's salvation is sufficient for all who believe, that Jesus is Lord is sufficient for all who believe. So when Peter preaches the gospel this time in verses 36 to 43, that's the emphasis. The gospel is the same, but the major new theme in this speech to Cornelius' household is the ethnic impartiality of God from verses 34 and 35. So the Christological theme that Jesus is Lord of all finds a new dimension, not only his superiority and his sufficiency for salvation, but also his sufficiency for everyone apart from ethnicity and apart from religious background. If Jesus is Lord of all, then the gospel can go to all. Anyone, regardless of ethnicity or religious background, can be accepted by God through faith in Jesus. And so we saw in verse 36 of chapter 10, as for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And in verse 43, Peter said, to him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name, everyone who believes. So in the last section for today, God is confirming that his acceptance is through Jesus, and it's not contingent upon observing any Mosaic ceremonial laws, such as circumcision or dietary laws or sacrifices for purification or observation of festival days. All of those things were requirements in the Old Covenant that God had placed on his people, requirements that God had placed on his people in order that they would demonstrate their faith in him, knowing that God desired that they should set themselves apart to him. Now people do not have to convert to Old Testament Judaism to be saved and accepted by God. Jesus is sufficient. Christ alone is enough. So if I were to tell you what I believe the lesson was for the Jewish church at this time, this is how I would state it. Acts 10, to eleven eighteen. The Spirit's confirmation of Gentile inclusion means that the church must welcome these believers into full fellowship and equality in the community in Christ. So what we have in the text today is clear evidence from God the Holy Spirit and a defense from Peter that the Gentiles, that their belief in Jesus is sufficient to make them one with the church and that the community needs to treat them that way. We'd read with me Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through eleven eighteen. While Peter was still saying these things, he was telling them that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While he was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word in Cornelius' household. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. 
for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? What happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came on the believers? They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke in languages that they did not know and they were praising God. And now this exact same thing happens among the Gentiles. That's gonna be important. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days and evidently that's what he does. Now, now, a little bit later, the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, or that is, those of the circumcision, so these are believers who, who themselves have been, have been circumcised. It's a way of just saying Jewish believers in Jesus. They criticized him saying, and now this is probably a particular group of them emphasizing this. You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down by heaven, from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no, no distinction. And now this is new information that we referenced before. These six brothers also accompanied me, so they're now there as witnesses with Peter. These six brothers, also Jewish Christians, accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. Verse 13, and he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. That there is also new information for the first time that we're hearing. As Peter retells the story, Cornelius was evidently told that Peter would declare to him a message by which they could be saved. In verse 15, as I began to speak then to declare the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You, those who put your faith in Jesus Christ. So evidently, you is not just Jews. You is everybody who believes, including Gentiles. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. And there's another example in the New Testament that repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin, and we can use them interchangeably. We repent of sin, and we turn to God. We put our faith in Christ alone 
for salvation. Now, as we look at this section, you're used to, as a New Testament believer, or even someone, even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ here this morning, you're used to the idea that salvation is not for Jews alone. Salvation is for everyone. So if we want to apply this text to our lives, we're going to have to plumb the underlying truths and implications behind the uniqueness of this occurrence in Acts for the early church that was predominantly Jewish at the time. So here's what we'll try to explain and apply that the text teaches us. We must let God correct our thinking about who can be saved. We must let God correct our thinking about how one is saved. We must let God correct our thinking when we elevate religious traditions as more important than relationship or relationships. Then right understanding will yield right belief will yield right behavior. Right understanding will yield right belief will yield right behavior. So first, we must not let God or we must let God correct our thinking about who can be saved and how one is saved. What does the text show us about who can be saved? Peter has had his vision corrected by his listening to God. So Peter declared in verse 43, uh, first of all, Peter declared in verse 34, I understand that God shows no partiality. And in verse 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So what the, the Holy Spirit does at this Gentile Pentecost proves, vindicates what God told Peter and is, is intended as God's confirmation of his promise to cause other, other believers to see this as well. So in verses 45 and, and 46, we're seeing that Peter and those who were with him, who were from among the circumcised, they, they understand that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on the Gentiles. They're hearing them speak in new languages and extolling God. Can there be any doubt that the purpose of this in the context is to show that the very same thing is happening here as what happened at Pentecost? That's the intent. That's what the church is supposed to be picking up on. Peter has had this lesson. This is happening. So that, Did you notice that we've heard a repetition of the story over and over again? The church is supposed to get the point that the Gentiles also can be saved. Who can be saved? Anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. So in, in chapter 11, verses 16 to 18, we saw, I remembered the word of the Lord. I emphasized to you even in the first reading, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now applying to everyone, you, whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, who was I to stand in God's way? Peter's vision was corrected about who could be saved. Peter literally said, I was getting in the way of who God is saving. I needed to come in line with what God was doing. Verse 18, so they heard these things and glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. This isn't the end of the story that we're going to hear about this difficulty of conflict between 
So the, the church is coming to accept that the Gentiles can believe in Jesus Christ, but it's not the end of conflict about fellowshipping together in the body. In Acts chapter 15, there's going to be issues about fellowship still, and the Jewish Christians need to learn that they can't play favorites either. So if God has accepted them, we're going to have to invite them into full fellowship. That's clear in this text. They just aren't doing it completely, and Paul has to confront even Peter about this issue, and we, we hear about that not only in Acts 15, but also in Galatians. Okay, so we're seeing that the Holy Spirit is proving at this Gentile Pentecost that anyone who uh, puts their faith in Jesus Christ can be saved. So that, that makes me think, applying to us this morning, who is too distant from God? Are you too distant from God? Do you think you're too far gone? Are you too great of a sinner for God to save? Well, how, how far is far from God? <laughs> as soon as any one of us commits sin, we are infinitely separated from God who is perfectly holy. All of us have sinned too much to be accepted by God. All of us need Jesus Christ to bridge the gap. So if you think you're too far gone, no one is too far gone. Who can be saved? You can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Saving faith is a conviction that is wrought in us by the Holy Spirit regarding the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we trust in the promises of God in Jesus. Who is beyond God's reach? No one. And so also we're asking ourselves, how is anyone saved? Who can be saved? Whoever believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how are they saved? By belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. In, in this text, we see that Jews are not saved by being Jewish. Gentiles are not saved by only fearing God and praying to him, which is what Cornelius was doing, but Cornelius still needed to do what? Hear the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is that we can be made right with God through Jesus. This is the good news. This is the message. These Gentiles, Cornelius' household, couldn't be right with God apart from knowledge of Jesus and belief in Jesus and calling on Jesus to save them for salvation. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we see God more accurately and ourselves more accurately. We come to understand his majesty, his perfection, his holiness, and his wrath against sin. We begin to see the depth of our sin and our need for salvation. We see the faithfulness of God to his promises and the unique mercy and sacrificial love of God through Jesus Christ. We see his grace toward us in Jesus. We begin to desperately desire to be rescued, and so we cry out to Jesus to save us. And here are some examples of wrong thinking that a passage like this from God helps us correct. Wrong thinking. I deserve salvation. Put yourself in the shoes of the Jews. Should you be thinking that you deserve for God to save you? If anything, by God's grace, he chose this people. And we have proven faithless and rebellious. No, the only thing we deserve is for our sinful waywardness 
or the only thing we deserve because of our sinful waywardness is destruction. Cornelius doesn't think that God owes him anything. That's why he's coming to God for salvation. It's wrong for us to think that we somehow deserve to be saved. It's wrong for us to think that I can or I can or I must earn salvation. If this could be done, the Jews would have done it under the Mosaic law. If anybody would have done it, it would be the Jews. God gave them detailed, specific instruction on how to live before him, how to, ro- how to walk rightly with him, but they couldn't do it. So with the Jews as our representatives, so if you're not a Jew here this morning, this is the way you need to hear it. With the Jews as our representatives of how we are as people, God has given us every opportunity to be right and to do right, but we cannot attain the perfect holiness of God. It just isn't possible for us. Sin prohibits it. So faith means that we we trust in God's promise and not in our performance. Abraham had faith in the promise of God concerning a future deliverer, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we trust not in our, even in our faith, but in Christ. Your faith is not in your faith even. Your faith is in Christ. Your trust is in Christ. He is the object of your faith. It is Christ that saves. It isn't even your faith that saves. Even though you must apply faith in Jesus Christ, it is Christ who saves. So wrong thinking would be also to to say to yourself, because we're talking about who can be saved and how can they be saved, they must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be wrong for us to think it's not fair for God to make Jesus the only way to be restored to him. Have you heard this argument when you're witnessing to someone? It's not fair for God to make Jesus the only way to be restored to him. First, God is perfectly just. But if he were only just, we'd be cooked. You don't want fair, you want mercy and grace. Secondly, there's no sense complaining of only one bridge between God and man. You know those hypothetical questions that someone asks you when you're you're witnessing to them and you're like, Well, that doesn't really matter because that's not true. That's not what the Bible actually says. So you could talk about hypotheticals all you want, but it doesn't matter because that simply isn't the case. So there's no sense complaining that there's only one bridge between God and man. There is only one bridge. You must use it. Let's say I need to get from here to Orlando, and there's only one flight per week. I could foolishly complain about it and never get on the flight. I could gripe that every other airline should have a flight to Orlando, but the point is they don't. I can either get on the flight or I can stay where I am. There's no sense complaining that Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. Instead, we must be overwhelmed with gratitude that there is a mediator and that God has revealed him to us. So we get on the bridge. Right understanding impacts right belief, impacts right behavior. We place our faith in Christ alone to save. We do not even trust, as we said, in our faith, but in Jesus. He's the object of our faith. He is the one who saves, so we get on the bridge. 
And that also means that what we're seeing with the Jews here is that you can't keep your religion and add Jesus to it. And that's true of every other religious thinking on our planet. You can't keep your religion and just add Jesus to it. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. And that means that all religious practices must submit to the lordship of Jesus and submit to God's instruction for the new covenant church in Christ. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And the Lord Jesus has inaugurated a kingdom that no longer requires strict adherence to the Mosaic covenant. Instead, in everything, the lordship of Jesus is to be our aim. So we must submit to him in everything and abide in him for everything. So too, it would be wrong thinking to think that God is saving, God is doing this work of saving people, so I don't need to worry about it. All that matters is that I've got my ticket. Is that what God shows Peter here? If Jesus is the only means of salvation, that means people must hear of Christ to be saved. And it means we must go to them and preach the word of Christ. Here's a great text from Paul's letter to the Romans that fits this context in Acts 10 and 11 exceedingly well. The verses before it and the verses after it uh, are pertinent too, but I only have time to show you verses 11 through 15 of Romans chapter 10. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But now, here's the application to Peter and to us. Besides believing on him, how then will they call on him whom they haven't believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How beautiful, or how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Peter had beautiful feet to Cornelius' household because he let God correct his vision. He let God correct his thinking so that he changed his belief and he changed his behavior. And now Peter has to convince other people we're going to have to let God change our, our, our perspective so we will change our belief and change our behavior. Cornelius' household believed because they heard the word, and they heard the word because Peter went to them and proclaimed Jesus as Lord. Through Peter's gospel proclamation, God provided Cornelius and his household with better understanding so that they believed in the Lord Jesus and called on him to be saved. God had prepared them, but they still needed to know how to be saved. They needed knowledge of Jesus. I need to move on to tell you also, as I promised, that we must allow God to correct our thinking when we elevate religious traditions as more important than relationship. This is true in our relationship to God, and it's true in our relationships with others. Peter's getting pushback from, from some Jewish believers, so he has to defend his non-discriminatory behavior. They don't appear to be complaining about his witnessing to the Gentiles. They're complaining about Peter 
fellowshipping with them in their homes without worrying about ritual impurity. You went to the uncircumcised men and ate with them. We can tell plainly, though, that Peter's thinking has been corrected and those Jewish brothers who are with him. Peter was willing to fully and freely fellowship with these believers because the Spirit had confirmed their conversion, and God had told Peter not to discriminate based on anything other than faith in Christ. So we don't discriminate against people for their ethnicity as to whether or not we should go to them with the gospel or their religious background. And once people have trusted in Jesus Christ, we don't discriminate whether or not they have the exact same practices that were expected of the Jews. The Jews are no longer to expect people to convert to Judaism. No, faith in Christ alone and the law of Christ. So now whatever Christ is telling us to do under the new covenant, that we apply. So now even we we understand we view the Mosaic covenant through the lens of the law of Christ. So Peter defends his actions basically by saying that this was from God and not from him. In order to do that, he retells the story with only a couple of new minor details we saw. Peter says, look, this is what happened and how God showed me that I should be impartial as he is impartial. The Holy Spirit has confirmed God's acceptance of Gentile believers in Christ without distinguishing between ethnicities and without observance of Jewish rites and customs. Apparently, up until this point, Peter and other Jewish believers weren't completely clear that Gentiles could be saved without converting, converting to Judaism as a part of their believing in Jesus, or, or at least that they needed to do the, do the Jewish things to be in fellowship with believers. So they needed the obvious evidence that the same Spirit was present in these Gentile believers. So I'll say again, is there any doubt that God intentionally had the exact same outward manifestations as he did at Pentecost. I think it's right to call this the Gentile Pentecost for the sake of the church, so that they would understand Gentiles are included in the body of Christ. There should be no question that the purpose of the event is the Holy Spirit confirming the conversion and acceptance of the Gentiles also. Through faith in Jesus, God was accepting the Gentiles as full and equal members of his people. Speaking in tongues to praise God was the outward demonstration of the Spirit's presence and God's acceptance without circumcision. Through just belief in Jesus. And you hear us say around here that context is king in Bible interpretation We can see that God himself directed and confirmed the expansion of the church to the Gentiles also. And you remember me saying when we introduced the book of Acts that we we have to try to view this transitional phase of what God was doing in the apostolic era. We're trying to understand which things are uh, descriptive and which things are prescriptive. Which things happen to them and which things should we expect to always be happening to us. Does this type of manifestation of the Spirit's presence need to be repeated every time someone is saved? If not, why not? Well, 
if this was the purpose of it in Acts, and I, I've told you before, we see it, we see it four times. We see it at Pentecost. We saw it with the Samaritans. We see it here. We see it with the the, the followers of John, who then believe in Jesus Christ and receive the Spirit. So we we're we're the the point uh, in in Acts is that it's being made clear that new groups of people are invited into the body. Well, then we have other times that people are being saved and they don't have the exact same manifestations of the Spirit. We don't have that being described in the New Testament letters as a requirement for how people must respond when they believe in Jesus Christ. And so it would be unwise of us to expect God to use us in precisely the same way he used believers in this transitional apostolic era. Such thinking has led to a great deal of wonky behavior that is more consistent with pagan mysticism than with New Testament teaching. So too, physical baptism was a public declaration of conversion, a personal commitment to Christ, an outward sign of God's internal work. Does water baptism save you? If water baptism saved them, then why had the Holy Spirit already worked in them to trust in Christ? Why does the Holy Spirit then reveal himself in this public manifestation and then Peter baptizes them? It doesn't always happen in the same order in Acts. Under the new covenant, faith in Jesus Christ is the only distinguishing feature, the only condition of full and equal acceptance into the kingdom. Then the external ordinances, and there are only two given to us in the New Testament, the external ordinances that identify us outwardly with Christ and his people are water baptism, After we've trusted in Jesus Christ, we're identifying ourselves with Christ, identifying ourselves with his people. We're publicly saying, I'm identifying with Jesus. I'm showing you outwardly what the Holy Spirit has done in me inwardly. That's water baptism, and it's a matter of obedience. It's not a condition for salvation. And then so we also participate in the Lord's table because Christ has told us to do this, to remember, to keep our focus on him. But it's not a condition of salvation, it's a matter of obedience, because we believe and we trust in Christ. God's acceptance on the basis of Christ alone means then that we must welcome into full fellowship those who have faith in Christ. The Jewish church needed this lesson so that they would welcome Gentiles, Gentile believers in Christ into full fellowship. The Spirit's confirmation of Gentile inclusion means that the church must affirm God's acceptance and welcome these believers into full fellowship with the community. When people are reconciled to God, they are reconciled to his church. Now, of course, you know from the New Testament that that doesn't mean fellowship can't be broken, (laughs) and that's why there's church discipline. But the first posture is the acceptance, right? Belief in Jesus Christ acceptance, no other conditions, Christ alone. And we have that in common. It doesn't mean that we'll never have any disagreements. It doesn't mean that there, we're all, all of us are flawed, so we're not always interpreting every element of the Bible exactly the same way. And so sometimes we differentiate with one another, but there should be an, an, an element of common connection with all who are in Christ Jesus. 
We cannot place other requirements on people other than faith in Christ. Even baptism, the ordinance of immersion in water, is something we, we press as obedience to Christ, but not as a condition of God's acceptance unto salvation. Steve Cole talks about this acceptance of other people and different ethnicities and uh, whatever religious background they come from or, or whatever it might be. He says this about how we ought to be in our community. He says the local church should be as racially diverse as the local population. Isn't that right? The local church in a given place should be as racially diverse as the local population. We're not segregating by any other thing that differentiates us, just faith in Christ. As we draw this to a close, I want you to notice that the church, what Peter has been trying to say is that the church isn't doing the leading here. Christ is the head of his church. So the church is following God's lead, learning how God views people. Who are we to argue with what God has made clear? Who are we to withhold fellowship in Christ's community? God is leading, we're following. God has spoken, we listen and obey. I want to end with this to encourage you. Go see the doctor. Go see the physician. I see the orthopedic doctor tomorrow about my knee. <laughs> Probably have a torn meniscus, but I don't know for sure. I'm not an expert. He fixed my other knee. I'm hoping he can fix this one, but I can't fix it. He can. He'll have a plan. He'll decide what to do, and then he'll actually fix it. I will not. So it is with God. In fact, God is the one who even shows us that we have a problem, that we have a need, that something is broken, that we desperately need healing, and so we come crawling to him to save us. But we can't fix it, he can. That's why your faith is in Christ alone. And that's why you keep coming to his word to see God, so that you'll stop looking at yourself in the mirror and going, I think I'm okay. No, you need to see more of God, and when you see the physician, what's so amazing about God's word is that you're seeing more of God himself. So you go to the physician to, to not just have the physician tell you what to do, but to see the physician. It's not just about him healing you, it's that he himself is the answer. Isn't that amazing? The doctor is the answer that you need. God is your answer. He is the one you need to see. God is revealing more of himself so that we will see rightly, we'll think rightly, we'll perceive correctly. And that changes our belief and it changes our behavior. Let's pray and sing a closing song and then we'll take communion together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. I do pray this morning that this text that... Uh, Perhaps in some ways, what it teaches is maybe obvious to us, God. So I pray that there are implications in it that will change the way we think, so that we'll change our belief and our behavior according to a true vision of who you are and what you have for us. We love you because you loved us first in Jesus Christ. Amen.